Today's reading is from Revelation 3, verse 14 to 22. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome um, to John. You're very welcome here at St. Mary's. Uh, My name is Tom. Uh, I've joined the team here at the beginning of the summer um, and having lots of of fun so far. Um, So as John said, today's talk is kind of looking at what it means to be the church. So we need to feel cozy and warm like a big family um, because we're going to learn to love each other um, well today. Um, Now this term, as we gather back together, we're going to be having a series looking at specifically what it means to be the church. But today we're kind of zooming out a bit and looking at a couple of chapters from the book of Revelation. And I think particularly as we've come out of this COVID season, it's provided a very natural opportunity to stop and pause and reflect, to reset and to remind ourselves why the church exists, what its priorities are and why we do what we do. And my prayer for us today that as we look at these verses from Revelation, we would begin to understand Jesus's deep passion for his church as well as beginning to reflect on what it means to be church here at St. Mary's. Verse 22, I don't know if it's still there, says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are your ears open today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift that is your church. We pray today that we would have fresh revelation of your deep passion and care and concern for it. And we pray that as a family, we would learn to serve you better and to love each other better. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we think about the church, some of us will come to this with a real sense of excitement and optimism about what the church is doing across this country for Jesus. But it's only right at the same time that we acknowledge that in recent years, if we're honest, the wider church has taken quite a battering, hasn't it? Now, nationally, if you look at statistics, church attendance is down and still falling. The church has often been in the news for all the wrong reasons. And the public perception of church is often that the church is against things rather than for things. And if you again look at the numbers, over COVID, many people on the fringes of churches up and down the country have simply not returned. And yet, and yet Jesus remains deeply committed to and passionate 
about his church. He has great plans for it and he has not given up on it. The narrative of the Christian story is one of hope, of restoration, of forgiveness and redemption. And there are already many signs across this country of new life in his church. You know, across the HB network, many churches are growing. You know, there's a rapid increase in the number of churches being planted and people going for ordination, as we've seen today. You know, this coming Friday, we're baptizing eight adults who have come to faith in very different ways. Some connected through the early service, 915, some through this service, some through the evening service, some through Alpha Online, some through the marketplace. Does that not even get an amen? Come on. <laughs> The Bridge the Gap football ministry begun here at St. Mary's has exploded across the country and reached thousands of people across the summer festivals. And the church still has a vital role to play. And I believe that in this moment, more than ever before, the church is called to be a voice and not an echo. An authentic, distinctive voice proclaiming the way of Jesus, offering hope and justice and new life and transformation that is found in Jesus alone. The church is called to have a voice, not simply echo back what society says. So maybe take a moment to consider the areas of your life, you know, the situations you're gonna find yourself in this week where God may be prompting you as a member of his church to be a voice and not an echo. The circumstances where God is giving you a voice to speak the distinctive, life-giving message of Jesus into the environment around you and not simply echo back what culture has to say. So we're going to be looking today at Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now as we turn to Revelation, you may be thinking that's a strange place to go to think about the church. Because if you know anything about Revelation, it's kind of the last book in the Bible, and it's usually famous for being known as being full of these unusual images and pictures and numbers and signs and symbols, which many people have used to kind of predict the future, um, so far as I can tell, with very little success. Um, but today, I wanted to kind of almost take a bird's view of Revelation and see how it clearly reveals Jesus's passion for his church. So there's 22 chapters in Revelation. And in chapter one, John, who wrote the letter, he paints this beautiful detailed picture of the power and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. The one it says who was the first and the last, the one who was there at creation, the one worthy of all praise and honor. And then right at the end of Revelation, the last few chapters finish with this final full picture of Jesus seated on his throne in the new heaven and the new earth where all of creation has been restored, where God lives fully among his people and every tear is wiped away. But then in between this vision of Jesus at the beginning and this vision of Jesus in full glory at the end, we find something that we may not expect. We find the local church. The local church, the community of believers is what Jesus chooses to invest in, to love, and to work through, despite all its flaws, he promises to build his church and to use it for his glory. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. So between these bookends of Jesus at creation and Jesus returning, 
we find the local church, the tangible vehicle that God uses to help us worship him, where we learn to love each other and where we get equipped to love the world, however slowly and blunderingly that might be at times. So don't be discouraged if there's an area of ministry that you're involved in or a friendship you've been investing in or a situation at work that maybe seems to be progressing more slowly and blunderingly than you'd hoped. Because God chooses to use us and work through us knowing our failings and our weaknesses. He'd already factored that in when he called you and he won't give up on you. Then interestingly, if we keep that structure in mind of Revelation, when we then zoom in on each of these seven letters that we find in chapters two and three, each of those seven letters follows the same pattern as the whole of Revelation. Each mini letter also begins with a vision of Jesus. It then has some instructions to the local church and then finishes with a section on Jesus's return. Now, I love a good map. I don't know if anybody else here does, but here's a little map of those seven churches. So taking it kind of from the abstract, these are seven real places in what is now kind of modern day Turkey. And the letter of Revelation would have been taken in a circuit and read to each of these real church communities full of ordinary people just like you and me. And in each one, Jesus reveals something different about the strengths and the weaknesses of each church. And by reading it today, we get to almost listen in and glean what Jesus may have to say to our church today. As we read this, I pray that we would make a connection with the church throughout history. We'd get a sense of our small place in the huge overarching story of God's plan for the world. You know, it's really great, the things we do here. They're fresh and exciting and new and creative. But also we need to remember St. Mary's is just a tiny leaf attached to a tiny twig, attached to a small branch, attached to this huge tree trunk, which is the story and the expression of God's people all the way from God's chosen people of Israel in the Old Testament through to the New Testament church, through to the expressions of church all over the world that we find today. So we, St. Mary's Church, are a community, we're not a building, seeking to play our part as God's people in the renewal of all things. Are your ears open today to hear what that part may be? So in Revelation 2 and 3, we're given a snapshot of each church. And through the first five churches, we read some amazing, encouraging things. We read about them, that they've been working hard for the gospel, declaring the truths of the faith and holding firm in the face of persecution. Smyrna is described as being spiritually rich despite being materially poor. But at the same time, we hear many criticisms of these churches. They've forgotten their first love. Some have been swamped by the culture around them and lost their distinctive edge. Sardis is called spiritually dead. Then we come to the sixth church, Philadelphia. And now these guys, let me tell you, these guys were legends. You know, not just because they've got the coolest name. The branding would be easy, wouldn't it? Philly youth. Philly hangouts, you know, their jumpers wouldn't still be on the rail four years in, right? <laughs> These guys were legends, not just because they had a great name, but because quite opposite to Sardis, they were spiritually alive. They'd kept God's word and not denied his name despite fierce persecution. 
You see, Philadelphia was a city made up of a combination of Christians and Jews. But this wasn't kind of a 50-50 split. So you don't picture a synagogue on one corner, a church on the next. Now, this would have been a Jewish community of several thousand with, with all of their own buildings and social structures and a small church, probably 20 to 30 people, holding on to the highly improbable and extremely risky claim that Jesus was in fact God. Then in stark contrast to Philadelphia, we land with Laodicea, which is the section we heard in our Bible reading today. And from the heights of Philadelphia, we come crashing right down to rock bottom at Laodicea, whose letter has nothing good to say about them. And I just imagine the person delivering the letter. You know, they've already trekked around the other six in the heat. They've just come from the joy of delivering their letter to Philadelphia and just thinking, you know, should we just call it, should we call it a day here? You know, six out of seven isn't bad. It's not even in a nice straight line. Doesn't it really annoy you that it doesn't just follow that line on there? Because this letter is not comfortable reading. Laodicea was situated at an important trade juncture which had made them incredibly rich. But they had become wealthy and proud and self-sufficient. You know, we can look after ourselves. Laodicea was famous. It had a world-class medical school which specialised in the treatment of eyes. And yet, ironically, in the letter, they're criticised for being spiritually blind. They couldn't see beyond themselves and their hard-earned wealth. Now, the one thing Laodicea didn't have, though, was good water. They had to either access the hot springs from Hierapolis to the north or the cold mountain water from Colossae to the southeast. But either way, by the time the water got to Laodicea, it ended up lukewarm. And that's where we get this famous stinging criticism that we read that I think makes us all shudder but that we can all relate to at times, that their faith had become lukewarm. They were complacent and proud and just coasting along. Now this may seem like a strange place to land on a church with nothing good to say about it. You know, we read stories, don't we, in Acts, why not go there, of the very early church, you know, where miracles were common, everything was shared amongst the poor, they met every day to worship and break bread. And maybe sometimes we can think, oh, if church was just like that, then we'd be okay. How do we get back to that way of doing church? But even in Acts, amongst all those amazing stories, we find those very churches also had many issues already. They disagreed over how to celebrate communion, how the church should be governed. There were debates over how they worshipped. There were personality clashes and people fell out. There was discrimination against certain groups within the church. And here in Revelation, we simply read the stories of seven real churches in real places full of real broken people like you and me learning what it means to follow Jesus and getting it wrong a lot of the time. But Jesus didn't give up on his church then and he hasn't given up on his church now. His passion for his church and his promise to build it and to love it with an unwavering commitment and care means that no matter how far from its original intent a church has strayed, Jesus will not give up on it. And as we dig a bit deeper into this letter to Laodicea, we find quite a beautiful message. You know, after that stinging criticism of verses 15 to 18, in verse 19, Jesus says he disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. 
It is because Jesus is desperate for a relationship with those at Laodicea and fully committed to see them flourish as a church that he corrects them for their own good. And we find a beautiful message here which reveals the heart of Jesus, which is that the church with the sternest rebuke is also the church given the most intimate vision of Jesus. We see that the church that has strayed farthest from God, the church that has got it the most wrong, the church that is least recognisable as Jesus' representatives on earth, is the church that is given the most loving promise. Jesus says, I haven't given up on you. I still want you, I still have plans for you. And if you turn back to me, it says, I'll come and eat with you. It's a close, intimate promise of fellowship. Jesus says to them, you'll then be seated on the throne with me as a great reward. You know, across these seven mini letters, and I'd encourage you to take time and read them this week, we see that Jesus both encourages, but also lovingly corrects and disciplines his church because it's his chosen way by which we learn to love God where we're formed and shaped into mature followers of Jesus and where we learn to play our part in loving the world around us. There is no plan B. So do you know that you are part of this church, part of God's plan to renew and restore the world? Not an afterthought, but part of the plan. We should drink in that encouragement today and stand on that promise. But equally, we should hear the warning. You know, are there areas that as a church we've become lukewarm? Areas that Jesus wants to lovingly but firmly correct us and reignite our passion. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So John Tyson, um, who's a pastor from New York that some of you will have heard at Focus, um, others of you may have come across him online, he helpfully um, summarises Jesus' continued passion for his church with three images which we're going to land on. And I believe these images are really helpful to keep in the forefront of our mind as we journey through this series. The first is taken from Ephesians 5, and that is the church is still the bride of Christ. And this image reflects the idea that Jesus is deeply committed to his church, not just because he has to be, but because he wants to be. Now, yesterday I had the privilege of speaking here at Andrew and Sally, um, who are from our congregation, got married here yesterday. And it was a real joy to witness the choice that they'd made and the commitment they were publicly stating to love each other, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. The church is not just a convenient arrangement whereby we kind of send up some prayers, Jesus looks them through and then sends down some instructions for us to do a few bits for him on earth while he reclines in heaven. Now Jesus is deeply committed. He's deeply committed. He has a deeply committed, loving, sacrificial commitment to the church. And when the church is promiscuous and goes its own way and does its own thing and gets it wrong and looks in all the wrong places, Jesus seeks her out and restores her and brings her back because he loves her because the church is Jesus's bride. For better or for worse is a promise that Jesus takes very seriously. Jesus is passionate about his church because it is bride. And so we too are called to love and give ourselves to church with that same level of commitment. The second image to help us understand Jesus's passion for the church is that the church is still the temple of God. 
You know, the central thing the church is designed to be is to be a place for God's presence. From Genesis right through to Revelation that we just read, the biblical story is one of God wanting to dwell amongst his people. And John Tyson, he, he observes, he says, most of the things that people think of when they think of church, such as you know the law and the rules and sacrifice and priesthood, are actually responses to the fracture of our communion with God and the expulsion from his presence and not part of God's original design. You know, God's presence amongst his people has always been his heart. And so the church is not a building to belong to, but a people to walk among. St. Mary's is not a club to belong to. It's the actual dwelling place of God's presence in the hearts of believers. And Jesus is passionate about his church because it is the place where, by his spirit, he dwells among us. Thirdly and finally, Jesus is passionate about his church because his church is still the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 says, you are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. Together we form the body of Christ, the hands and the feet and the mouth and the heart of Jesus on earth, learning to do the things he did. There was a guy on an, on an aeroplane, it was a long flight, and being friendly, he said to the person next to him, oh, what do you do? And, they, and she replied and said, oh, I'm an estate agent. And she said to him, well, what do you do? And he said, I work for a global enterprise. He said, oh, do you? He said, yeah. She says, do you know, we've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. She said, really? He says, yes, we do. You know, we've got hospices and hospitals and homeless shelters. You know, we do marriage work. We've got orphanages and feeding programs. We've got edu educational programs. We do justice work and reconciliation work. We basically look after people from birth until death and we're wholly committed to seeing the transformation of all people and all of society. And she went, wow, what, what is that called? And he said, it's called the church. Have you heard of it? No, though the church is broken, the church is amazing. You know, isn't that the response we would love people to have when they think of the church? A place where people are wholly transformed by the love of Jesus. Jesus is passionate about his church because it's still his bride. It's still the temple of God and it's still his body, his way of transforming and restoring the world. So how does all of this play out in our context here? Well, I believe that the call of Jesus is to share his passion for his church, to love the church with all its flaws, with the same level of commitment as a marriage, to recognize the church as the temple of God, nurturing an environment where God's presence dwells, and finally, to live out our identity as the church, as the body of Christ. Remember, the church is not a building, it's a community. And so this actually looks like stuff in real life. It means loving those around us with all of our flaws, with the same level of commitment as a marriage. It means allowing God's presence to have free reign in our lives and in our relationships with each other. It means playing our part, whichever part of the body we may be, to serve the whole. You know, church is not like a cruise ship you know, where there's a small team of people here at the front providing service and entertainment for the guests who are simply there to enjoy the ride. No, no, it's a battleship 
you know, where everybody is given a role, everybody contributes, everybody gets to play, and everybody's united in a common mission. The letters that we read about in Revelation were not read in individual quiet times. They're read aloud to communities of believers, often meeting in people's houses, and the encouragements and the challenges were heard and held together. You know, it's great if we feel close to God when we're by ourselves on a lovely walk with a beautiful view, listening to our favorite podcast. Lovely. But what about feeling close to God in church with all of its faults and flaws and people that annoy you, alongside other Christians that may disagree with you and challenge you and irritate you? It's that process that exposes the parts of my character that I would rather ignore. It's in the process of journeying with my fellow disciples, you know, deeply investing in a table, serving at Alpha or the marketplace, alongside my fellow apprentices. It's there that the truths of the Bible are given opportunities to mold and shape me through the messy realities of everyday life. It's as we gather that I remember that my spiritual journey is not about me. So as we begin to enter a time of ministry, I'll invite the band back up. Um, if you're able to and find it helpful, then would you like to stand? As we enter this time of ministry, let's, let's be family. Let's not lose the moment. Let's remember Jesus's passion for us as a church. Let's be encouraged that he won't ever give up on us. But let's also use this time and this series to commit ourselves to being challenged and shaped and formed into the church that Jesus wants us to be. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.